man named Moses that draw his people out of slavery. That he brings them out of slavery in Egypt and he's brought them into the wilderness and he's been this ever present with a cloud of fire at night and a cloud of pillar in the, in the daytime guiding them and guarding them all along this journey. And we've seen that God has made this covenant vow at Sinai that there's this marriage covenant that's made. That somehow God draws his people that was a family as they came into Egypt and as they've left they become a nation. And God is gonna bless this nation to, to fulfill a promise that he gave to their father, Abraham, to be a blessing to the whole world. But we've seen also ourselves in the Exodus story, haven't we? That God is awesome and I find myself in the Exodus story being one of these Israelites that's quick to forget, that turns their back on God so easily, that turns to trust other things. And so we, the last couple of weeks, we've seen this whole episode of how the people of Israel have forgotten their God, but God is faithful to his promises. And as they turn their back on God, still God forgives them and pardons them as they've asked for forgiveness, as they, as they repent and restores them back into relationship. We've seen all these different episodes and we've neglected one of the most essential pieces to the whole book of Exodus. In fact, it takes up probably the most room in the entire book and we haven't even mentioned it yet. And so if you're new this morning, you're right on time, friends. When you wanna know, you look at ancient literature, what's important? One of, the, one of the ways you can see what's important to the author is, well, how much space do they give it? Because they don't have just like infinite blog space and terabytes, you know, on their Dropbox and just keep writing materials. No, they're, they're, they're scribing this down. And so they're going to give a lot of space to it. It's very important to them. And so from chapters 25 to the end of the book 40, it's all about the tabernacle, a construction project. It takes up the majority of the room here from 25 to 40. In fact, in 25 is where God calls Moses to start building this tabernacle. It's a tent of meeting, a place that God might be worshiped and sacrificial atonements might be made. And it's rudely interrupted, it says, as the golden calf, as we were looking at the last few weeks, where Israel forgets who their God is and begins to turn to the material and what's visible and trust into this golden calf that Aaron has made. And then God restores his people, and then he picks up right where he leaves off, building the tabernacle. And so, as one scholar put it, it's those, this is one long speech that's rudely interrupted with Israel in the middle. And so, as God's telling him, this is how to build the tabernacle, this is how to build the tabernacle. Oh, wait, they're sinning? Okay, hold on a second. They deal with that, and then God comes back, this is how we're going to build the tabernacle. Be, this is what I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted. This is what I wanted you to do. And it all begins here in chapter 25, verse 8. God calls Moses. He says this. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now here's God who's been meeting with, with Moses outside the camp. But call the people to build a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a house. It's going to be a portable tent. Build this portable tent that I may dwell in their midst. As Tremper Longman III, a scholar that I've been enjoying reading in this series, puts out that Exodus' primary topic is the presence of God. Is, is God present with his people? And we've seen God present with Moses. We've seen God present with his people as he guides them and guards them. And now God says, I, I want to be so close with my people. I love my people. That would you build a portable tent that I would dwell 
Not outside my people, but dwell in the middle of their camp. And so we're going to look at a little bit of what they built, of what it, what it took to build these things. And so I want to get your mind around what this might have looked like. So from the instructions here in Exodus, there are many artistic renditions of what the tabernacle could have looked like. Here's kind of an artist's view of the tabernacle. So what you see is first and foremost, it's in the camp of Israel. Not on the outskirts, not some remote mountain, but among the people. And here you see that there's this outside wall here, and then the tabernacle itself is in the middle of this. And so what we'd see is if we measured out all the different dimensions, this is probably 100 feet by 50 feet with a 20-foot opening here. And so if you think, what's 100 feet, you know, what's 50 feet? When you're watching sports later today, 100 feet is about from the goal line to just past the 30-yard line. So this is goal line to just past the 30-yard 30 line, 30 line will encompass all of this. And this is the outer courts. And in the outer courts are two elements here we'll talk about in a minute. And then there's the tabernacle when you come in. And inside the tabernacle is a holy place. It's broken into two, two sections. And it's two-thirds holy place. And one-third the holy of holies behind a curtain. And in the holy places where the priests would minister, and behind the holy, in the holy of holies, there'd be a priest that could go one time a year on the day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. And this is what the people of God are going to be instructed to build, that God himself would dwell among with his people. And so they're instructed to build several elements. Here's kind of a picture of some of those elements that they're going to be building. So we have the furnishings of the tabernacle, and this is kind of a rendition of how big they are. Here's the altar of burnt offerings. That's the first thing you would come to in the courts, and that's where sacrifices would be made. And it was coated in bronze. And then there's the bronze basin where people would wash, the, the priests would wash, before they enter the tabernacle. Elements outside the tabernacle are made with bronze. But as soon as you enter inside the tabernacle, it's all gold. It's perfect. It's rich. It's holy. And so all of a sudden you see the, the table of showbread. You see the altar of incense in there, the golden lampstand. And in the Holy of Holies is this Ark of the Covenant, all in gold. And all these things, these elements are to bring you back to what God has been doing. And one day is, is a shadow of what God will be doing. And so there's you know, 12 Loaves of bread on the showbreads represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the menorah. This is a symbol probably of the tree of life in Eden. And all these different elements help people connect with the story of God. And so here, God calls Moses, call the people. We're going to build a portable place of meeting. And we're going to put this place in the middle of the camp. Because God's heart is to be among his people. And as we'll see today, there's three things I want you to see from the building of the tabernacle. The building of the tabernacle is going to teach us about generosity. It teaches us about worship. And then it teaches us what God's heart is towards his people. So, if you got your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35 is where we're going to pick up. Where they're going to need different resources and elements to build this. And so, in chapter 35, Moses calls the people to give a donation Moses, we'll pick up in verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, 
let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned, skin, tan, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. And onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents, its coverings, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. So God calls the people of Israel to say, hey, anyone who has a generous heart can give towards the work of the Lord. God wants to build a place of meeting with us and put it in the midst of our lives. And he's calling anyone who desires to give generously to be generous to the Lord. Check out verse 29. Puts it so well. Or sorry, pick it up in verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were willing heart, brought. And then it lists all these things that they brought, all these resources they brought. And then verse 29, it just so clearly says this to us. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose hearts moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. As a free will offering. Now, I want to put this in contradiction to what was done with the golden calf. If you remember this a few weeks ago, we talked about the golden calf where, where they, the people become uneasy. And they're not sure, like, where's God? We don't see him. We don't feel him. We want something tangible to trust in. And so they go to Moses' brother, Aaron. They say, Aaron, build for us gods. And you know what Aaron does? He says, okay, I'll build you, build you gods. Give me. Give me all your earrings. Give me your gold. Give me your silver. Give me your wife's jewelry. Drain your bank accounts and give it to me. And if you remember, the first principle of whenever idols are built is that idols will first and foremost rob you. They'll rob you of everything in order to build itself. But God does something so different. God doesn't guilt people into giving. He doesn't coerce them into giving. He doesn't say, give or get out. The Lord simply invites. That's how the Lord does his work. He invites. He says, I want to dwell amongst my people in a portable tent. Go amongst the people and ask them. Whose ever heart stirs. Don't force them. Okay, don't guilt them. Just ask. Ask if they would be willing to give to the work of the ministry so that I might dwell among them. And the response is simply, as it's recorded, a free will offering. That people showed up and freely gave of gold and silver, gave out of their linens and tanned hides. They, they, they freely give of these resources. Which I ask, where'd they get all this stuff? I mean, they have gold and silver. They have all of this means. I mean, did they pick this up along the way? No, remember where they got it? All the way back in chapter 12. I'll read it to you. It's not on the screen. When they were leaving Egypt, they became such a stench in the Egyptians' noses. The, the Egyptians wanted to cast them out. And God told Moses to tell the people, it says in just chapter 12, verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and 
gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. All this wealth, all this gold and resources has come from God. God gave it to them. And so the first principle of of generosity is simply, I'm being generous with what God has already given me. So God says, would you be willing to build this tent? It's going to take these resources. Where are we going to get that? Oh, wait, God already gave it to us. The reason we're willing to be generous with God is because God has already been generous with us. God is a gift-giving God, and he has already resourced Israel for everything he's going to call them to do. And for those whose hearts stir them, they bring some of those resources and say, Lord, for the work of the ministry, use what I have. In fact, get this. Let me go back to chapter 35. They bring so much that Moses has to tell them to stop. Pick it up in chapter 36, verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command. A word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Before there was a house of worship, there were hearts of worship. Before there was a house to get into and sing praises and play songs, there was just simply a heart of worship. And the heart of worship is a heart of generosity. Generosity to what God wants to accomplish out of the resources that God has graciously given us. And so God begins to teach us what is it that worship looks like in hearts of worship. But it's not only other resources. I mean, plenty of things can be said to be, okay, just give me all the things you own. But God also wants to incorporate the people. God doesn't just want to get all their stuff. I mean, he's the one who gave it to them in the first place. But he wants to incorporate the people. And so it's not only their, their gifts as far as their resources, but their spiritual gifts that God gives them. So check out chapter 25, verse 30. This is going to talk about the heart of worship and the hands of worship. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones, for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. 36.1, Bezalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord had put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Get this. God's going to build a portable tabernacle to dwell with his people. That worship might happen there. 
And you would be inclined to think, okay, then there's probably a local pastor who shows up, shows up and says, well, I can preach a message. And a local artist that says, well, I can sing some songs. And the Lord says, very nice. Go sit over there. What I really need is a structural engineer. I need some craftsmen. I need some seamstresses. I need some tailors. I need people who know how to dye cloths. I need, to, I need people who know how to work with precious metals and stones. I need people who know how to use their hands. And the spiritual gifts that he gives to the people, don't they seem so earthy? They seem so earthy. I mean, when we think of spiritual gifts, we think of some sort of transcendent vision, which there are parts of that. But when God comes and his spirit graces these men and women, he touches their hands. And they can use their hands to build a place of worship. These hands of skilled women and men, seamstresses and tailors, those who have precious dyes. It says, those who have artistic abilities. You think God doesn't care about art? God wants his place to be gorgeous and beautiful, that people would worship him. And so he brings artists there. It's amazing, it reminds me of Eden. That God would put a man and a woman in a place called Eden. And the first acts of worship is to garden. Before there's any instruments, before there's a preacher, before there's these churches, the first service of worship is a shovel, is to till the ground, is to cultivate its resources. We sometimes forget that we are so human, both body and spirit. And when God's gifts come on these men and women, he touches their hands. And so they begin to build the tabernacle. I think about this in our own congregation. I look out here, so many familiar faces, and I think, this place is filled with skilled, intellectual, brilliant women and men that can do amazing things. And the invitation is, would you bring both your heart and your hands and give that to the service of God? One of our international partners is down in Brazil. We have several international partners around the world, as you know. And our Brazil team left this last Friday. Dr. David Seitz and his wife, Jan, have led this trip for more than a decade. Hundreds of people from Calvary have gone down just on this one trip. And there is a conglomeration of doctors and pediatricians, pharmacists. There are those who are optometrists. And then there are construction workers, artists, painters, those who are great with children. And as they travel down the Amazon for an entire week, working and serving alongside the ministries to the river people, proclaiming the gospel, do you know what they're doing it with? Their hands. Their hands. This is your spiritual act of worship, is your hands and your life. And so one of the things the tabernacle teaches us is that worship, though it's not less than praise, though it's not less than music, it is so much more. It is your life and how God has uniquely shaped you to bring the wholeness, your heart and your hands to the Lord and say, I want to give the best of my resources, the best of my energies to the work of the Lord. And so the tabernacle teaches us both of generosity and what worship is, and it also teaches us the heart of God. I mean, who is this God? Does he care about us? The whole purpose of building this place is that he would dwell among his people. God's heart is to be with you. God's heart is to be with you. 
God's heart is to journey with you in the seasons of wilderness. And so after the construction, this is finally the conclusion of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 40, Moses is called to erect the temple on the very first day of the, of the month. That's chapter 40, verse 1. And then in 34, after they've built the temple and they put all the elements in it, and they're all ready for worship, God does what God promised he would do. He draws near. Check out chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud, this is the cloud that's been guiding them and guarding them. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. In fact, it's this tabernacle that's brought into the promised land. That sustains them through the judges, through the first king Saul, through the second king David, only to be replaced by a permanent temple in the days of Solomon. That's what it says, First Chronicles, check this out. First Chronicles recounts for us, they ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they performed their service according to their order. That this sustained them for generations. That God's presence never left them through their wilderness into the promised land to the days of the kings. How sweet and kind is that? That's the Lord's heart for his people. God's desire is to dwell with his people. He wants his people to be in close proximity, in relationship with him. Now, we look at this in the tabernacle and say, okay, that's an amazing picture. But it's only one glimpse of the larger picture that God is painting, that God's desire is to be with his people. God wants to be with them. Now, we could just say that's the end of the message, but I want to take you out into left field. You guys want to go? Yes! The reluctant few? Sorry. You can sleep. All right, if I lose you, we've got seven minutes. If I lose you, we'll bring it all together in about seven minutes, okay? But I bring, I bring pictures first and foremost, okay? So here's the thing. God's desire, his heart, is to be with his people, Exodus' main theme is the presence of God with his people. The tabernacle is the desire of God to dwell with his people. Because God's on a mission to restore what was lost in Eden. Remember when, when God created men and women, he, got, he created them to be in relationship with him. And there they worshiped with him, with their hands and their hearts. And it said they walked with God in the cool of the day. That was the relationship. Unbroken, face to face. And what was lost in Genesis 3, when we rebelled against God and said, God, we think you're holding out on us. We don't think you really care about us. If you really loved us, you would give us everything. And that separation happened between us and God. That's what was lost in Eden. Now God could have just said, we're done with them. We'll start again. But he's not only creator, he's redeemer. 
And there he begins to unfold what he had planned before the foundations of the world to restore his people back into right relationship. Because it's God's heart that you would always fully dwell with him. But sin has separated us. And so he was strategically moving throughout history, and the tabernacle was one of these moments to restore what was broken. So here's the picture I'm going to show you. We're going to talk about it through the scriptures, and then we'll come back to, okay? So here's the picture. The picture is between two trees. This is Eden, the garden, the tree of life. And then here's the Bible. This is the whole Bible here. And it ends in Revelation. And then the end of Revelation talks about a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And there in the new city of God is the tree of life. And we live between these two trees of God restoring what was lost in Eden. And so we're going to go through episodes of altar and tabernacle, temple, Messiah, and spirit as he restores us back to God fully and permanently. Let's check it out. So the first part is altar. That's with Abraham. So the first, one of the first moves he does is he calls a family. I'm going to bless you, Abram. That's the father of the Hebrew people, the father of Israel. That's where the whole nation comes out of. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take you to a promised land. I'm going to bring your people here. And so Abram leaves his home and goes to a, a land that he does not know, this land that God has reserved for him. And along the way, and as he comes into the land, there are several episodes where Abram builds an altar and God appears to Abram. This is one of them. This is Genesis chapter 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's where we're journeying in Exodus. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. But God doesn't just want to appear to one man. What good is that? God wants to restore all people back in a relationship with him. But the means was God to Abram in this altar. And then as we journey longer into the story, that's where we come across the tabernacle. And the altar is not simply in a specific location with Abram, but the altar is moved inside this place called tabernacle, a dwelling place where God lives amongst his people in the camp of Israel. And that's what we looked at at Exodus 25. Just remind you, let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. I want to be with these people. I want them to share their lives with me. I want to give my resources to them and encourage them. I want to dwell among my people. But that was a temporary, portable shelter. And King David really wanted to establish something more glorious. I mean, he looked at his own palace and he said, surely God needs something better than this. But God didn't let David build a temple, but he let his son Solomon build it. And David got to acquire all the resources all the needs and the means that they were going to have for the temple. But then in the days of Solomon was the temple constructed. Check out 1 Kings chapter 6. And I will dwell, this is Solomon, among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This is around the construction of the temple. The whole purpose of the temple was to dwell among the children of Israel, that they would never be forsaken. And they construct the temple this incredible place. And there God does the same thing he did with the tabernacle in Exodus. Two chapters later, 1 Kings 8, take a look. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, the temple, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
Same language. Same language. That God filled the tabernacle, now he's filling the temple. But God doesn't dwell in temples, houses, made with human hands. But God is so much more than simply a, a temple. And so, as Charles Spurgeon so, said so well, these are all a shadow, a shadow of things to come. Because God's heart is to dwell with his people and restore relationship, restore Eden. So because the temple wasn't sufficient for what God's mission is, God himself came. And he dwelt among us in the flesh. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. This is John chapter 1. Check this out. And the word, that's Jesus Christ, the word who was with God in the beginning and was, was God in the beginning, in whom all creation was made, the word became flesh. And Jesus dwelt, this word dwelt is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Remember the glory? Filling the tabernacle in the temple? We've seen that. It's the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus dwelt among us, walked with us, endured with us. But he did something so much more. By the life he lived through his death and resurrection, he did what the tabernacle and temple could never do. It's forgave us our sins forever. So that we would be right with God. So the very thing that kept us from being right with God is now forgiven. So that we can be brought back to God in right relationship. And after, before, his before his death and resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, I'm leaving, but it's better for you if I leave than if I stay. That's a weird statement, because we're all thinking, I don't, I don't know, Jesus, I think it'd be really great. Like, you're a great security blanket. I wish we had a little bit more Jesus in all of our lives. Jesus says, well, it's God dwelling in flesh. I'm going to do something even far more than that. Because I want to be as close to my people as possible. This is the heart of God, is to dwell with his people. And so, you know what he does? He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell, tabernacle, in us. Check out John chapter 14. And, this is Jesus, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the permanence. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells within you and will be or with you and will be in you. That's how close God wants to be with his people. I want to be with them. I want to be in them. I want to help them. And in order to do that, I'm going to leave so that God's spirit can come. And as you've enjoyed the presence of Jesus dwelling with you disciples, the world will experience God dwelling with them wherever they are because the Spirit will be with them. And if it's God who dwells in us, what does that make us? The temple. This makes us the temple. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. We're that temple. You go back to the tabernacle in the episode we just looked at in Exodus and say, man, he took his tabernacle seriously, didn't he? The elements inside the tabernacle were all gold. There were sections called holy of holies that, that no one could enter except for one priest one time a year. 
And God has taken that whole presence and put him in us, put himself in us. How should we conduct ourselves as the temple of the living God? Perhaps with more reverence and fear. Perhaps with a little bit more respect of, of who God is and what he's doing with us. This is what Peter tells us. Another one of the disciples of Jesus Peter tells us, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as this temple, to be a holy priesthood. We don't need the, the priesthood. We are the priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That as the temple of God, we offer spiritual sacrifices. It's not bulls and goats on the altar of incense. No, it, it's our lives. What do we offer God? We offer him our heart, and our hands to say, Lord, we are your temple. That God, you dwell in us. We desire to work towards the things that you have commissioned us to do. What has God commissioned us to do? Make disciples. What did you just tell us? Go into all the world. All the world, I'm gonna scatter you everywhere. One day you're gonna learn about a land called America. In America, we're gonna want disciples to be made. Go make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And we say, let me be generous with everything you've given me to accomplish that means. Let my hands and the skills that you've given me, I'm uniquely wired. The things that I care about, my personality, my experiences, the spiritual gifts that God has given you, let me use all of that for the work of the kingdom. I wanna use my best energies, my time, my talents, and treasures for the work of the Lord. That's our response as little tabernacles, dwelling in the world, waiting for resurrection. And the amazing thing is, as we think about Revelation, at the very end, there's the tree, the city. And so throw that graphic up here one more time. Here's the story. Is Eden, perfect relationship with God in the coolness of the day. And as you see the Bible unfolding, it's God getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to his people until that is a perfect, permanent residence forever with the removal of all sin and all death to wipe every tear, to mend every wound that you yourselves would once again walk with the creator in the cool of the day. Is he worthy? Come on, he is. He, of course he is. He is so generous and kind towards us. How can we not respond? How can we not respond with our whole lives as living sacrifices? I'm gonna pray for you and then we'll stand and leave. Father, I thank you so much that you, God, are worthy. Worthy of every song we have sung worthy of every gift that we would bring, worthy of our whole lives. Lord, you have earned our trust. And so, Lord, let us hope in you. I pray for every single man and woman in this room who has yet to know you. Would they know you as the God of relentless pursuit? May, would they, may they sense your pursuit in their own life by putting friends and family, neighbors in their life that are just little temples, little tabernacles of your presence drawing their own hearts back to a loving, heavenly Father.
And Lord, may we give the best of ourselves to you. Father, we pray this in the name of our, your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in ourselves. It's in his name we pray, amen.